Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi everyone, this is the Yale University Press podcast and I'm Michael Hoke. Lake Superior is the largest freshwater lake in the world by surface area, greater than most of New England combined. By volume, it contains as much water as all the other Great Lakes combined, and then some, accounting for 10% of the Earth's fresh surface water, enough to cover all of North and South America in a foot of water. It inspires awe even to this day, and has even had songs written about it, though not always under the happiest of circumstances. But the lake, like many other things in the natural world during the Industrial Revolution, has faced some tough challenges. Here to talk about the history of the lake and the conservation efforts around it is Nancy Langston. Nancy is a professor of environmental history and the author of three books, including Sustaining Lake Superior, An Extraordinary Lake in a Changing World. She also happens to live on the shores of Lake Superior. Nancy, thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here. So why, why Lake Superior? What makes uh, it so special? Well, Lake Superior is special because, as you said, it's the largest freshwater lake by surface area in the world, and it's head of a basin that contains 22% of the world's freshwater, the Great Lakes Basin. And so anything that happens here in Lake Superior has the potential to affect nearly a quarter of the world's freshwater. So what we do in this one remote, distant, cold basin could affect the entire world. Lake Superior, as we now know it, has really formed since the retreat of the last glaciation, about 4,000 years old. So that means that the communities, the forest communities surrounding Lake Superior, are actually quite new in age. And and you said it formed uh, by from a glacier, correct? Well, the recent configuration of Lake Superior was shaped when the glaciers retreated. But initially, the lake formed when the Great Rift, the Great Mid-Atlantic Rift, formed hundreds and hundreds of millions of years ago. And what is the what is the life cycle of a lake? You're you're saying it's in a different stage, sort of, than it was before. What is what does that life cycle look like, and where? is Lake Superior in the life cycle? Uh, Lakes do have a life cycle, just like people. They eventually age and become what's called hypereutrophic or filled with nutrients and then slowly fill in with sediments and eventually turn into meadows and then forests. Lake Superior is still very, very early in that natural cycle. And that cycle should take place very slowly because it's such a deep and such a big lake. So the concerns about Lake Superior's health came about when people realized that cultural practices, pollution in particular, erosion from farming, were actually creating a kind of cultural eutrophication or cultural aging of the lakes on Earth. And we'll get into the the pollution, obviously, which is the the heart of what you've written about. But um, Lake Superior is, of course, famous for being the site of the sinking of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Many people probably know the song. Um, it was carrying um, iron ore at the time, taconite. Um, what what does that have to do with the lake? Well, taconite is special because um, when when people finally figured out after World War II that we were running out of 
high-value iron ore. Lake Superior had been the world's largest iron district for decades, but we only had a limited amount of really high-value ore. When that ore began to run out, engineers and state administrations thought we've got to do something to supply the world with iron ore so we don't become dependent on the communist bloc that had formed after World War II. So there was a lot of effort to try and figure out how to utilize this extremely low quality ore called taconite. And when the state and engineers finally figured that out, they had a great future for economic communities around the lake. But there was a huge problem, and that was pollution by the very finely ground tailings from this taconite, which they needed some place to deposit. And the only problem was they were filled with asbestos. And so how close... um to the lake are these mines? Are they right on the lake or are they uh, a little bit away, but the runoff kind of goes into the lake or um, what's the proximity? Yeah, the really big taconite mines are a bit upstream of the lakeshore itself. So they're where iron ore deposits are found. And so in Minnesota, in the iron district in Minnesota, they were 30 to 40 miles away from the lake. But the challenge was figuring out what to do with the waste products from those mines. And they typically used to be just dumped right into inland lakes, and there the precipitation and rainfall and storms would carry them throughout entire river systems. So by 1947, enough people in Minnesota were really worried about that. They did not want to keep losing their inland lakes for recreation, for fishing. So instead, the State Department of Conservation worked with the huge companies to decide that it might be more efficient simply to dump the tailings right into the lake. So they built train and railroad tracks to carry this massive volume of ore down to the lakeshore where it could be processed. The finished ore could be put on boats to be shipped to the steel mills in the lower Great Lakes, and the waste could be dumped right into the lake itself. And so at this point... uh an industry pops up right on the shores, essentially, of the lake. Exactly. So it wasn't the mines themselves. It was instead the processing facilities for the taconite. And was there an understanding then that, you you know, you can't just keep dumping and dumping and dumping and expect nothing to happen? Or was it, you know, this lake is so big that there's no way we can have any effect on it by by putting these things into it? Sure. In 1947, when the plan was first proposed, the state was aware that the lake was a remarkable resource. So it wasn't that the state just said, hey, what a great idea. Let's put hundreds of billions of tons of waste right into the lake. So instead, they held public hearings, nine public hearings around the region, and literally thousands of people showed up to debate this proposal. There were people from the tribes, a lot of union workers showed up, a lot of people from Canada, and almost all of them expressed the feeling that, first, they wanted jobs, they did not want to stop mining in the basin, but second, that the quality of water in the lake was even more important than jobs, because they all recognized you couldn't have a future for this basin if you didn't have clean water. So jobs had to come second to protecting the environment. So the state was trying to balance two really important viewpoints. One, that economic development was key, but two, that economic development and human communities depended on the quality of the water. So it wasn't really a jobs versus 
environment argument. Instead, it was how can we protect both of those for a healthy future? And so the state was persuaded by the company that this waste could be dumped right into the lake, and the lake was so big that even the billions of tons of waste wouldn't really hurt the lake. But the key point is a lot of people really disagreed. They said, no, the waste isn't going to stay in one place. It could spread throughout the entire lake. It could destroy fishing. It could destroy water supply. So there was a lot of uncertainty, and the state had to act even with all that uncertainty. And were there limitations put into place, or were the industries sort of given free reign to dump as much as they wanted? In 1947, when the decision was finally made by the state of Minnesota to allow the project to move forward, there were strict limits on the permits. The permits specified that if any harm was seen to the lake itself, if there was any evidence of pollution hurting drinking water quality or hurting fisheries, then the project had to stop. So the state tried to drop a really environmentally protective permit, but the problem was, as plenty of people said right at the time, that once you have a billion-dollar development, it's not going to stop just because somebody sees a little fish damage or a little pollution. That projects and economic investments have a real momentum of their own. And those predictions came true very quickly within a year of the project um, getting underway and actually starting production. That was in 1956. A lot of people began to complain about their fishing nets being fouled with what they called green slime. They started to complain about fish kills. They started to complain that they couldn't see very deep in the lake anymore. And yet when that information was provided to the state, the state found it really hard to change the behavior of the company. And instead, they kept allowing the company to increase its water withdrawals and to increase the amount of waste that they dumped into the lake. And how badly uh, did this affect uh, an industry like the fishing industry? That's a great question, and it's really hard to answer precisely. Local fishing communities did suffer up and down Minnesota's coast, but fish populations always change on their own. It's not like fish just stay in place. Mm -hmm. And so the company and their lawyers argued, well, sure, there were some changes in fishing, but it might just be natural variation. You couldn't necessarily blame it on human actions. And so the same kind of debates we hear today about climate change were happening in the early 1950s when fishing began to be harmed. And there was a really big issue also going on at the same time, and that was an invasive species called sea lamprey that made its way into the lake, and their populations began to explode, and that really hurt lake trout, the most valuable of the fish for the fisheries. So there were a lot of different stressors happening at the same time, sea lamprey, habitat modification, and above all, pollution. And trying to work out which one was really most responsible essentially made it really hard in a complicated world for the state to actually say, we're going to shut down this really important industry. It was much easier to say, well, it's complicated. Let's just continue and see what happens. And um, the sea lampreys, where did those come from? The sea lampreys came from the Atlantic Ocean, and for millennia, they'd been in the Atlantic Ocean but couldn't swim all the way upstream to the upper Great Lakes because Niagara Falls was in the way. <laughs> um, and once we built the, the Erie Canal and then we built the Welland Canal, which bypassed the big uh, waterfalls, um, then sea lamprey and other invasive fish from the Atlantic Ocean, so sea, 
um, could actually make their way up into the upper Great Lakes. And when they reached Lake Superior, they found a very different lake. It turned out that decades of intensive logging and intensive agriculture had changed the way that the tributary streams, the little streams and rivers running into the lake, had used to be really cold, clear streams. But all that logging and farming had filled them with sediments and made them pretty murky. And that turned out to be perfect habitat for sea lamprey to develop. So if they'd come into a pristine lake, their populations probably wouldn't have exploded enough to really hurt lake trout. But they came into a transformed watershed, and that made it possible for their populations to explode and basically suck the fluids out of lake trout. So lake trout populations crashed because of this stressor of sea lamprey, probably as well because of pollution and also because of the long-term effects of logging and agriculture. And speaking of fishing, what is uh, toxaphene? Oh, toxaphene is a pesticide that was developed in the American South in order to control pests on cotton production. And it had been around for about a century, but then its use really exploded after DDT was found to be really dangerous. And toxaphene is a synthetic chemical, but it's made out of natural products. It's made out of the terpenes from pine plantations, and it's also made out of chlorine. And so the manufacturers could say, well, this is a sort of natural chemical because it's made of natural building blocks. So sure, if you're going to reduce DDT, let's use lots of this new sort of semi-safe chemical, <laughs> although the name itself, Toxaphene, wasn't great from a publicity perspective. <laughs> Not the best marketing in the yeah, world. Yeah, <laughs> but it turned out that Toxaphene is extremely toxic, and it bioaccumulates, <laughs> and it also tends to bounce up from its sites of use down in cotton plantations. It's very volatile, so it really quickly gets up into the atmosphere. And then it comes down when it rains, and then it bounces up again. So it's like a grasshopper. It bounces its way up north. And then when it got to Lake Superior, which is such a cold lake, it didn't keep bouncing up. So it basically got captured into the lake and worked its way up the food chain until its levels in the fish in Lake Superior were some of the highest ever recorded in the world. And this was a cause for enormous concern because it emerged that toxaphene is toxic for people. It's a carcinogen. It changes your hormone activity. And so even though it had been banned from U.S. production in the 1980s, in the 1990s and the 2000s, biologists began to find it at very high and very toxic levels in the fish and in the people who ate that fish. And what are some of the, what are some of the health concerns from that? You mentioned it's a, a carcinogen, but what other effects did that have that people started to notice? Um, it, it works to disrupt your thyroid hormones, but again, there are lots of other synthetic chemicals that do the same thing. PCBs are also very toxic. They've been banned for a long time, but their levels were quite high in Lake Superior. Um, mercury can also do some very similar things. Mercury is quite toxic to brain development. 
So it turned out that even though Lake Superior was pretty remote from most industrial development, except for mining and paper production, these industrial chemicals that are used in other parts of the world at high levels were accumulating in this remote basin, and especially accumulating in fish and in the people that eat those fish. So just a couple of years ago, the state of Minnesota found that 10% of newborn human babies at the moment of birth have toxic levels of mercury in their bloodstream. And that's because their mothers are eating healthy fish from the lake. But unfortunately, those fish are high in mercury. And that can affect all sorts of elements of brain development and social development in young children. And because the the surface area of the lake is so big, does that make it particularly prone to... Um, gathering things from the air of the atmosphere itself and that, that settle in the lake? Um, that's part of the issue. And part of the issue is that the lake has historically been so cold. So there's a lot of deposition onto the surface of the lake. And instead of those chemicals eventually evaporating up and going right back up and heading further north, they tend to stick to the lake as though it were a kind of sponge or a sink. And so the size of the lake, but also the coldness of the surface waters have combined to make Lake Superior capture a lot of the world's pollutants. And what is the, what is the temperature of the lake, you know, from season to season? It's cold. <laughs> Anybody who tries to swim in the lake. Um, it's 39 degrees Fahrenheit on average, uh-huh. um, which is, means it's really cold. Right. Much of the year, of course, it's frozen, although our ice cover has dropped almost 80% in the last few decades. Um, and what's one of the things that's interesting about Lake Superior is it's a really cold lake, and animals, fish in particular, have adapted to that. Um, but it's also the fastest warming large lake in the world, which is pretty extraordinary. Our air temperatures are increasing one degree Fahrenheit per decade for the last several decades, but our water temperatures are warming at twice that rate. Surface water temperatures are increasing about two degrees Fahrenheit per decade. And so that could change the way that the lake functions biologically very, very dramatically. It's nice for people who like to go swimming. It's great because <laughs> I'm an avid swimmer and kayaker. So it's a little easier to swim in the summer. But ecologically, it can be a huge um, transformation for the region. And what causes the, the water temperature to, to warm faster? To be honest, nobody is absolutely certain why the water temperature is warming so much more quickly than the air temperature. Part of it is because ice cover, as I mentioned, has been dropping. It's really dropped enormously. We used to have an average ice cover of 70% over this enormous lake by February. So most of the lake used to be frozen. By 2100, models predict only 10% of the lake will have ice cover. So that just means there's a lot more evaporation. There's a lot more chance for the lake to, for the surface waters to warm up a little bit during the winter. So we don't go into the summer with as cool water temperatures. And how badly was Lake Superior polluted, especially um, maybe compared to the other great lakes in the region, which were also heavily trafficked and used? Um, what, was the, what was the level of pollution like? You know, it was nothing like Lake Erie, (laughs) where the river in Cleveland caught on fire. Rivers didn't catch on fire leading into Lake Superior. (laughs) So the changes were pretty subtle. 
um, because it's such a big northern lake. We didn't have huge blue-green algae blooms covering the lake like we're now seeing returning, unfortunately, in Lake Erie. But when the lake began to get cloudier and cloudier from the taconite pollution, when people began to realize that they couldn't just dip in a cup and drink the water straight from the lake, the largest city on the shores of the lake is Duluth in Minnesota. And Minnesota had always gotten its drinking water straight from the lake. Hmm. And then in the early 1970s, um, after concerns about asbestos from the taconite pollution were raised by two women, Verna Mize and Arlene Leto, somebody actually tested the waters in Duluth and found that there were more than a billion fibers of asbestos in a hmm. quart of drinking water. And people got really concerned. The Army Corps of Engineers rumbled into town with safe drinking water for the citizens. And it was a shock because everyone had thought Lake Superior is so big, dilution will always be the solution to pollution. Hmm. So we didn't tip over into this incredibly disgusting state, but there was just enough pollution beginning to gather that people realized if we wanted to protect this as one of the most pristine, clean, clear lakes in the world, somebody had to act. And in your book, you recount a story of being a child and visiting, I, I think, your grandparents in Chicago and finding the shores of Lake Michigan uh, covered in dead fish. And I remember I spent some time in Cleveland as a kid, and uh, I remember Lake Erie always had this very <laughs> particular smell to it. Um, but now you say you live on the shores of Lake Superior and you aren't confronted with this. What what sort of measures have led to to a decline in the pollution and the other um, negative uh, things that go along with it? Sure. Communities came together in the late 1960s and early 1970s because they were really frustrated by paper mill pollution, pulp pollution, which really, really stinks. They were frustrated by seeing what had happened to Lake Michigan with the alewives, um, you know, the millions of dead alewives coating the beaches. And people began to say the kinds of ways that we're trying to control pollution and balance it with economic development aren't working very well. Because before the Environmental Protection Agency and the Clean Water Act, the federal government really didn't have much say about water pollution. It was up to states and local communities to regulate it. And often people had the best of intentions, but it simply didn't work very well. So, for example, for hundreds of years, people were really concerned about drinking raw feces in their drinking water. And yet they couldn't do anything to stop upwater communities from dumping sewage into the drinking water without treatment. They had very little power to keep industries from dumping, you know, raw, decaying, dead bodies from tanneries cow bodies, not human bodies. <laughs> um, and so the, the reasoning at the time was, well, it's cheaper for downstream communities just to chlorinate and filter the water than for upstream communities to control industry and municipal sewage. Um, and yet people began to say, this is, this is crazy. We don't want to live in a world where there are dead chickens floating into our drinking water. We want to live in a cleaner world. But states weren't very good at cleaning up the water supply. So finally, after the Cuyahoga River caught on fire for, you know, it wasn't the first time in the early 1970s, but it finally captured attention after the Santa Barbara oil spill, after the enormous fish kills from pulp and paper mill pollution in Wisconsin, the federal government finally responded to grassroots concerns from local communities by saying, 
we will come together and we will set clear standards, federal standards in the Clean Water Act, that every state has to make sure its industry and its towns meet these standards. We're not going to go in and tell the state how to do it. We're just going to say you can't dump raw sewage in somebody's drinking water. And it's up to the states to figure that out. And so this was in line with our principles of federalism, that the states have the power, but the federal government does get to set clear standards. And it was remarkable how much cleaner the Great Lakes became after that. There was funding to help clean up the water. There was finally a level playing field for industry. Before that, if one state said, we don't want your pulp mill waste dumped right into the rivers of Wisconsin, the pulp mills could just say, well, you know, we'll just go over to Michigan where they don't care that much. So it was very, very hard for one state to act when other states had looser regulations. And after the Clean Water Act and the Environmental Protection Agency finally had some funding to enforce clear standards, then the industry really began to clean up its act. And they often found, such as with the paper industry, that they could save an enormous amount of money by instituting conservation principles. Before that point, the paper companies, for example, were wasting half of their fibers and just dumping them straight into the water because from year to year that was cheaper than recovering those raw fibers. But that meant they had to cut twice as many trees, and so they were doing twice as many interventions into the forest, paying twice as high labor costs for loggers and production people. So eventually, when they were forced by new federal standards to actually reduce their pollution, they found that they could save money doing that. But it took grassroots efforts from local citizens, state efforts, and above all, clear federal standards for that improvement to happen. And so the the regulations sort of limit how much goes in, but is what what does a cleanup look like? How do you uh, undo what was already done? Yeah, that's a great question because one of our real challenges in the Great Lakes as a whole is realizing that we don't only have to worry about what's happening today. We have the legacies of the past to struggle with because many of these contaminants they bioaccumulate, so they get higher and higher and higher as they work their way up the food chain. And they also end up in sediments at the bottom of lakes and streams. And so anytime those sediments get stirred up, say by a huge storm, then all of a sudden the past becomes part of our present and our future. So we have to stop what we dump into the lake, control that, but we also have to figure out how to clean up the legacies of the past. And so with the Superfund Site Act after Love Canal in the Lower Great Lakes captured the nation's attention, um, both Canada and the U.S. started looking around the U.S. and Canadian Great Lakes and realizing that there were things that they called areas of concern along Lake Superior that's mostly from the paper and pulp industry, but some from mining as well. And those are places where contaminants from past industry still needs to be cleaned up. So communities have the power to form what are called um, resource action councils or groups of citizens that come together with industry and the government to try and figure out how to actually clean up those past industrial developments. And some of them have actually been quite successful. It's not cheap to do this. It really relies on a lot of federal funding. And much of that funding in recent years has come from something called the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative which right now gives about $300 million a year to local communities and scientists around the Great Lakes 
to figure out how to clean up past industrial sites to make sure that the water is clean for everyone. And I can imagine uh, that part of the answer, if not all of the answer to this next question, is climate change. But what are the biggest threats facing uh, Lake Superior going forward? Well, what everyone used to worry about was the biggest threat was that the rest of the world would want our water. <laughs> Great Lakes with 22% of the world's fresh water. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, about 20 years ago, an Asian company said, hey, let's send a big tanker into Lake Superior and take some of that clean, fresh water out and send it to Asia. And that really captured people's attentions, both in Canada and the U.S., saying, wait, we don't want our water being sent to Asia. Realistically, you would need endless thousands and thousands of tankers running night and day to make a dent into the water <laughs> of the Great Lakes. But it just made people think, oh, no, do we want to become another Aral Sea where there were tiny little irrigation developments and then bigger ones and a little canal dug here, a little canal there. And soon what was the largest lake in Central Asia is now almost dried up. Hmm. And that's had terrible effects on people's health because all sorts of toxic dust gets swept up into the air. It's destroyed the fishing communities. It's destroyed the industries that had built up around the lake. And people in Canada and U.S. said, hey, we don't want that to happen to the Great Lakes. So we signed what's called a Great Lakes Compact that says no water can be taken out of the Great Lakes, no pipelines to save Phoenix, no you know, um, tankers taking water to Asia. And that was an incredibly insightful and important compact that was signed just over a decade ago. And what that means is that every single governor in the U.S. along the Great Lakes states, every single premier or provincial director um, in Canada along the Great Lakes has to agree before a drop of water can come out of the basin. Hmm. And that really protects the Great Lakes um, for the water demands that might happen in the future. And that's a great model of new kinds of governance that don't depend just on federal action, but on states and communities coming together to say, we really value the Great Lakes and it's time to step up and protect the Great Lakes. And as you said, climate change is the most important threat that we face right now. And finally, what are lessons learned on Lake Superior that can be used elsewhere to combat pollution? Well, one of the key lessons is, is natural resiliency. One thing that happened um, in the Lake Superior Basin was some of the world's fastest logging. People thought that the trees were endless and we could never log them. And within two decades, almost all of the trees along the U.S. shore of Lake Superior, the really valuable timber trees such as white pine, were gone. And there was massive erosion. After that, people tried to farm, but it's not a great place to farm because it's cold and rocky. The farms failed. That sent even more erosion into the watershed. And by the turn of the century, by the beginning of the 20th century, it was a huge conservation disaster. The wildlife was gone. The fisheries were being depleted. The economies were suffering. And people thought, well, so much for Lake Superior. <laughs> Um, and the watershed has really recovered. We have more than 75% forest back again. It's, it's extraordinary. The wildlife has come back. We have bears. We have wolves. We have 
all sorts of birds that had almost been extirpated or driven extinct locally. And this came back because communities came together and said, we value these forests, let's figure out how to restore them. But these forests and their communities came back as well because natural ecosystems have a lot of ability to assimilate pollution, to break it down, a lot of ability to be resilient in the face of habitat loss. So trees eventually grow back unless you keep cutting them and cutting them. So some of the key lessons are one, even if it seems limitless, it can change quickly. Our water is not limitless, our forests are not limitless. We have to figure out how to set limits on our own human extraction. And the second key lesson is that if we work with ecosystem resilience, we can actually help restore the Great Lakes, that the lakes have an ability to come back if we give them half a chance. The book is Sustaining Lake Superior, An Extraordinary Lake in a Changing World. Nancy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much, Michael. It's been a pleasure. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening. Find us at YaleBooks.com or on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And while you're there, please take a moment to subscribe and leave us a rating if you like what we're doing.